In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Pawn Order. Here to fill you in on all that's going on in the world of animal law. I'm Peter Sankoff, and I'm here with my co-host today, Camille Lapchuk. Good afternoon, Peter. How's it going? It is going very well. We say this very frequently, but it has been a busy couple of weeks for animal law. This is one of those, I, I, I should say, occasionally we have a show where it's a little quiet and we're scraping stuff together, but uh, it's been busy, Camille, some real big doings in the world of animal law. Yeah, literally almost never not busy, but that's okay. That's the way we like it, right? <laughs> Well, we like it, but like I, I'd say this week was kind of special. I mean, I've, I've, I know you have, but I've never testified about an animal cruelty bill before. I mean, that was that was pretty cool. There's been real stuff happening in the law. Yeah, yeah, Peter, we had our debut, and actually, it was my first time testifying before the federal parliament about an animal bill. I have testified provincially before and before city councils, but this was a first for me too. So this week, uh, and I guess we're talking about. February 5th, for anyone who's keeping track of dates or wants to go look it up online at some point, but you and I testified before the Justice Committee of the House of Commons on Bill C-84, which we've talked about on this program a few times, but it's the government bill that would close gaps in the criminal law related to bestiality and animal fighting. Yeah, and it, it was a pretty big deal. I mean, aside from, it, it may well be that the animal cruelty dimensions of this bill were fairly limited and that they only touched on animal fighting and uh, bestiality to relatively, I don't, I don't want to, you know, undermine what they did, but relatively small things to fix, uh, given the morass of animal cruelty. But nonetheless, it was the first time in many years, uh, I, I believe since the 90s, Camille, that there has been a bill put before Parliament which allowed experts, if you want to call ourselves experts, to come forward. And we were able to talk about these issues and raise quite a few more, uh, explaining what the problems are uh, with, with, with the federal criminal code approach to animal cruelty. So that was great in itself. Yeah, it's been a very long time since Parliament considered this issue in any serious way. And we're still, of course, disappointed by the scope of Bill C-84. It just affects bestiality and animal fighting. So as you mentioned, important issues. But when you look at the numbers of animals used for other uh, cruel treatment, you know, it's hard to compare. But uh, it was still really good to be there. I, I had a great time testifying. I don't know about you, but I found the committee's questions really thoughtful for the most part. I think that uh, the the MPs on this committee were doing their jobs and they were all very keen to pass the legislation too. So we had kind of an easy ride. Uh, I have seen lots of committee meetings where you get a rougher ride talking about animal issues, but this was not one of those days. But uh, so I I showed up in person in Ottawa, which was easy for me to do. and, And you appeared via video link, which is just such helpful, great technology for bringing people across the country into the committee meeting. 
And the thrust of my submissions, Peter, was like, okay, good, I agree with what you're doing, I agree that we need to define the word bestiality so it closes loopholes that let people get away with non-penetrative sexual acts towards animals, and also just adding a few things into the animal fighting section to strengthen that up and make sure it's an offense to train animals to fight and uh, transport animals to fight and, and things like that. But uh, we asked for a couple amendments to the bill as well. So one thing that Animal Justice asked the committee to consider, and I think they were very open to it and very keen on it, in fact, was making sure that someone convicted of bestiality can also be banned from owning or possessing or having custody or residing in the same place as an animal in the future. That's super important. And the second thing, yeah. Peter is uh, animal justice is asking the committee to just delete this section of the criminal code that applies only to birds rescued from a cockfighting ring. It says that the birds must be taken before a judge who must order that the birds be killed. And for us, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, there's lots of times when you can rehabilitate or care for birds or take them to a sanctuary. So just getting rid of this mandatory death sentence for innocent victims would be a good thing. And I think the committee was open to that too. Yeah, I also found the reception quite good. I echoed your concerns about the um, the prohibition order. I thought it was essential that uh, if you're going to treat this as an animal cruelty offense, which Parliament seems keen to do, it only makes sense to recognize that uh, the sexual uh, contact with animals is the type of thing that can disqualify you from holding animals in the future, and it's important to do that through a prohibition order. Um, I, I also uh, agreed. I, I found the questions were very poignant and uh, uh, like really re pointed, not poignant, um, <laughs> were pointed and on the right uh, issues. And I, I thought parliamentarians were keen to understand um, what the law was designed to do. And I spoke in more length uh, explaining why this type of law fits into the way in which we're approaching criminal theory. And I did that for two reasons. One, because I think um, this idea of um, risk and punishing in situations of vulnerability and risk, the two key components that involve that are involved when an animal is used for sexual purposes, I think that is consistent with the way we treat human victims today. And I also think it was important to lay that down because I would like to see uh, many expansions of the criminal code into areas where animals are at great risk because they are so vulnerable. So I thought it was important to get that out and I thought it was important to also leave the committee understanding where the rest of the code is falling down. And I think that was brought out by myself and some of the other witnesses who came uh, forward, as well as you, uh, making it clear, look, this is good, but we've got a lot more to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for anyone in interested in watching our testimony, it will be up online at some point. Right now, if you visit, I think you can go to the Justice Committee website for the House of Commons and listen to the audio of that meeting, but they're going to be putting the video online within a week or two. It just took a little bit longer because of the video conferencing stuff, and I guess they need to edit it. So it will be up there at some point. Yeah, great experience overall. Um, I have every expectation that this bill will pass uh, easily through the House and then the Senate, I suppose, but uh, it's, it's really... You know, it's good. It, it feels, it, I don't know about you, Camille, I felt as I was testifying, it was sort of, I, I realize it's not quite the end, but it felt like the coming to the end of a long journey, because you and I have been working on this issue for so many years, and uh, it really feels like, look, it's time to move on past bestiality, to get this clarified, to uh, get this amendment done, and then we can move on to tackle other challenges.
Yeah, that's right. We It's been over uh, almost four years at this point, Peter. We first intervened in the DLW Supreme Court case that opened up this loophole in the fall of 2015. We pushed the government after that when the decision came out to close it. We helped MP Michelle Rempel draft a bill that would have done so. We helped uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith with his bill, C-246, that would have done so. And it really does feel to me as well like it's kind of coming full circle. We're not quite there yet, but it'll be nice to close this chapter. And frankly, I'm going to be really glad to stop talking about bestiality after four years. <laughs> me too. It's it's nice to get to that point where it's like, okay, we can accept that sexual touching's off the table. Let's get to the more uh, important issues where, you know, we still have vulnerable animals and you still have harm and let's tackle those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's great stuff. Now, that isn't all that you've been doing. My God, Camille has been through a mail storm. Is that the way we, we, we call it? Uh, Camille's done some exciting stuff. I, it's been a pleasure to watch her on television and online. Camille's gone right to the heart of more important animal cruelty matters. She has taken on the dairy industry. Wow. (laughs) And that has sort of blown up, Camille. Tell us all about it. Well, this all started uh, almost two weeks ago now. I think on our last episode, I mentioned to to listeners that I was going on a a show in in Ontario on TVO called The Agenda with Steve Pakin. And it was a, a debate about the OSPCA and the court case that we were involved with that came out, Bogarts, and the future of animal law enforcement in the province. It was a really good panel discussion. It was me, Dr. Kendra Coulter from Brock University, uh, Brian Schiller, who's a lawyer in Toronto and counsel to the OSPCA, and Akash Maharaj, who, who works on equine policy with the University of Guelph. So great discussion. And the reason this storm arose out of it was because I made some throwaway comments about uh, the lack of inspections on farms. So it came up, I think the question was asked, well, is the OSPCA too aggressive with farmers and, and inspecting animals on farms? And my point was, well, no, they're not. They can't be because it's not like there's any standards or regulations that apply to farms in this country. They're just unregulated with respect to animal welfare. And so they can't really inspect anything because there aren't any laws. And the agenda you that clip on their Twitter account. Uh, And then the whole show aired later that evening, but they sort of promoted it with that clip. And Peter, the dairy farmers freaked out. They lost Mm -hmm. it. They were all over Twitter slamming me, saying that I'm lying, saying that there are laws. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Tell me more. Which laws are you talking about? And then they would link to something that's not a law. They would link to typically this, this program called ProAction, which is the dairy industry's own like self-regulatory, self-enforcement program. Um, it's certainly not legally binding. It doesn't have the weight of law behind it. There's no public inspections. There's no public oversight of it. They're essentially watching themselves. The fox. Is I got. I got some house. of this too. I got some of this too, of course, Camille, because I, I decided in. to weigh in. I, I decided to weigh in and support you, and I got some of this nonsense too. I got a lot of links to. Canada's animal cruelty laws. That's what I got links to. So like in Alberta, they would link to the the Animal Protection Act and they would link to the criminal code. And they'd say, see, see, you stupid people. Sorry, I inserted the you stupid people, but it seemed like that's what they were saying with their ridiculous gifts of mic drops and all kinds of other things saying, see how stupid you are. Failing to recognize yet again that there are exclusions that exclude the agricultural sector from the our operation of these provisions. And I should say, which has always annoyed me, that, that there is no exclusion for the criminal code. That's true. But there is just 
a very clear reluctance to uh, go after industrial activity. There are sort of common law uh, exclusions in the criminal code, and there are explicit exclusions in every single provincial statute. So this idea that, oh, well, look at these statutes. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, those don't count. And, and I should add, Camille, because I know you want to jump in on this, there was another guy who just linked to a million statutes that regulate the farming industry. And like, I don't... I. Personally, I don't care about the Milk Act, you know, and the biosecurity protocols. Like, those are all well and good. Yes, I understand that you're regulated, <laughs> like, but you're not – those Those have nothing to do with animal welfare. It's like – it's just – I don't know. It's like arguing no. with um, – yeah. Uh, that's exactly it. I mean, the farming industry is regulated, sure, but not for animal welfare. It's not like there's some statute that sets out standards for space requirements or, or anything like that. And, uh, you know, to your point on the existence of like general animal cruelty laws or provincial animal protection laws, not only are they inapplicable to farms for the most part, uh, but they only kick in after egregious abuse. They're not standards that are set out to prevent abuse from happening in the first place, like welfare regulations would be. So everything they were saying was was just really, really frustrating. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I got drawn into it. It was kind of fun. I, it was just so easy to shoot down the arguments that I couldn't resist. And what ended up happening, Peter, is the producers for the show, The Agenda, that I was on, they were so fascinated by the backlash and fascinated by all these Twitter people calling me a liar, saying the show was unbalanced and everything was biased, that they thought it was worth having me back on to debate a dairy farmer about yeah, yeah, yeah. industry regulation. So I was like, <laughs> yes, bring it on. I love it. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, so I did debate a, a dairy farmer. Her name is Bonnie Denhan, and she owns and operates a smaller, apparently, uh, apparently family-run dairy farm in Ontario, kind of north of Toronto by a couple hours. Camille, they're and, all family-run. They're all family-run. Oh, I know. The That's dairy what I hear from Farm and Food Care. Farm and Food Care, Ontario. What yeah. is a factory farm? What is it? We don't even know what that is because they're all families. Yeah, sorry, I I, that's just a bugaboo. That comes out all the time. Sorry, go ahead, Camille. Oh, you're right. They're always trying to cl claim that their industry is prettier than it is and use sort of Disney-esque buzzwords to make it sound like it's just some pastoral paradise for animals. But, you know, however, however small or large a family farm might be, the practices are the same. And that's one thing I pointed out on the show. I mean, first of all, I made the point that industry self-regulation isn't working. Uh, without public oversight, we just don't know what's happening on farms. We do get a glimpse when there's a public, uh, sorry, a, a private investigation, like a animal protection group gets a job in a farm and then reveals the information. This did happen in Chilliwack, BC. That was the only dairy farm investigated in Canada. And that resulted, Peter, in nine animal cruelty convictions under provincial laws for abuse that the animals suffered, including being beaten with canes and sticks, being hoisted uh, with metal chains and a forklift around the cow's neck, um, open festering wounds, workers punching animals in sensitive parts like the testicles. It was appalling. So but I mean, that's, taken that's care what of self it, Camille. Camille, I what? read your Twitter feed. They've 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 taken care of it. It's all yeah. good now. Yeah, no, it's all good <laughs> now. Dairy industry is watching its farmers. Not. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Self regulation works, Camille. They're on it. Yeah. So anyway, I had a really good time with the debate and uh, an addendum to this. And I, I got great feedback on it, too. I think people really enjoyed seeing the dairy industry put on the spot. And I was able to point out, like, look, even on your best small farms, assuming that they're better than bigger ones, you're still separating baby calves from their moms moments after that they're after they're born. 
so that the milk can be diverted for sale for human consumption. Uh, they're still sending the male calves to the veal industry where they're killed shortly after and again but isolating the them from their moms. But the cows don't care, Camille. Camille, the cows don't care. That's I heard two I heard two defenses. A, the cows don't care. And B, if an apple falls off the tree, you don't cry for the apple. Those are that's what I heard on Twitter, which is why that was when I stopped responding on Twitter. Yeah, that was that was kind of the level of debate. It was it was pretty low by the end of that whole conversation. But uh, I got to give a shout out to just a couple of folks who were just rock stars on Twitter, just stepping in and trying to educate people. So Jessica Scott Reed, who gets lots of shout outs on this podcast, is getting another <laughs> one for that reason. Uh, Nital Jethalal was was in there making great points. Neil Morrison, I'm probably missing people, but um, for all I don't of those, know me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You definitely I was busy. had some. I was away. Here. I was away on a weekend with my son, so I was trying to stay out of it as much as possible. But a couple of times, I couldn't help myself. Yeah, and the Lara Dev on Twitter too, whose whose actual name I can't remember, but that's your handle. Awesome, awesome job. Anyway, so Fantastic. the show we'll post a link to it in the show notes. It was really fun. And then the addendum I mentioned that was kind of funny is yesterday I was going to um, kind of a fancy place in Ottawa. It's known as the Rideau Club. It's where lobbyists go, politicians go, private club. I was going with uh, someone who helps us lobby on Bill S two hundred three, the the whale and dolphin bill. And we're getting we're waiting for the elevator downstairs to open, and it opens, and guess who's in it? But Bonnie. <laughs> My dairy farmer opponent was in the elevator, and Fantastic. Peter, it, it took me a second to place her because I wasn't expecting to, you know, see my uh, debate opponent who lives way outside the city of Ottawa, not usually in town. But it turns out uh, we we had a quick little chat. Um, she had previously invited me to her dairy farm on the show, which I indicated I would happily go to, but I'd much rather go to her neighbor's barns who have chickens and see thousands of them stacked on top of each other. Anyway, she didn't reiterate her invitation to her farm. <laughs> but I later learned that probably the reason that she was in town is because the Dairy Farmers of Canada had a lobby day on Parliament Hill on February 5th. And there's all these photos of them all over Twitter meeting with MPs. So, Hey, a couple of million dollars well spent, you know, Camille, the dairy industry. Like, oh, my God. They have so much money. Their lobby budget. Oh, boy. Well, so it's good money. because they get because then they get it back from Parliament in various brands and breaks and, you know, things to offset uh, trade disputes. Boy, it's like you follow the dairy industry. There's a lot of money there. Yeah. You know, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, probably the best part of that debate is is I pointed out that the dairy industry is very happy to accept public subsidies and money from the public purse, but doesn't want public regulation or oversight. And Bonnie was very offended by that. And she said that the dairy industry isn't subsidized. So, you know, the fact of seeing her Seriously? in the elevator yesterday in Ottawa, it makes me think, well, what are you here asking for if not for public money for your industry? I mean, it's just so Seriously? laughable. Go look no. at the Federal Department of Agriculture website, and there's a list of subsidies given to the dairy farmers. It's huge. Oh, yeah. Wow. Good stuff, Camille. Well, that sounds like it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. It was. So, Peter, I understand that you are celebrating an important animal law anniversary. Do you want to fill us in? It is, and you didn't even know. This is a surprise for you, uh, Camille, but uh, I wanted to take note. I had it in my calendar, diarized. I actually put it in many years ago because this is a big week for me. Um, this was 10 years ago 
today, Camille, or uh, sorry, this week, 10 years ago, when you were just an animal law sprout. What were you doing 10 years ago? Weren't you like fighting for some other democratic causes? You weren't even in law school. You know what? 10 years ago this week, I saw this reminder on Facebook. I was accepted to U of T Law. There you go. So Camille was still a baby law sprout and she was, you know, not even on the radar. She wasn't the, you know, television superstar we know today. And I was uh, living in New Zealand. But 10 years ago today was an incredible day for me um, in that uh, my first book on animal law was released. We had a book launch 10 years ago this week for Animal oh, wow. Law in Australasia, a new dialogue. And it was a huge day because we had been working on this particular book for close to three years. And it was the first time that a book was ever released, the first animal law book ever in the uh, Southern Hemisphere. It was the first in Australia, the first in New Zealand. At that point, there was no animal law book in Canada either. Uh, no animal law book had ever been written here. There were only a few animal law books out of the U.S. That's all there was. And this was the first edited collection to ever discuss these issues. It followed up on a, a, a very successful um, uh, workshop that had taken place a year and a half earlier. And uh, it was launched with the assistance of Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute, which you can look up. We'll try and throw a link to the show notes for some great work that they do in Australia. And it was just full of some people who've really go on, who've really gone on to make a real impact uh, in in the animal law universe. And uh, it was such an exciting day for me. I can't uh, even tell you. Wow. Well, congratulations on that milestone. That's that's really cool and just yeah. amazing to reflect on how far things have come in ten years. I mean, you've moved to the other side of the planet, which I'm happy about because now Canada gets you. But uh, what's happened in Canada in, in the last ten years has been incredible too. Well, yeah, and this is the, the, there have been three, you know, two other books since then, a second book in Australia and New Zealand, and then, of course, a Canadian equivalent uh, a few years back. But it, it is interesting to reflect back, and I want to just uh, read a very short piece from the introduction, just to give a sense, because uh, I'm of the view that you really, in animal law, you need to look at progress over a long period of time. You can't say what's going to happen today, because we're not getting those animals out of captivity. And I think it's about building movements and building structures, and, you know, this is close to a hobby horse of mine, Camille. Like you're very, well, what, what was that? Oh, <laughs> sorry. I heard the hoofs because you have your hobby horse of, you know, I'm surprised that somehow you didn't get, uh, I, I'm just stunned that we talked about C84 and you didn't tell everybody to contact their MP, but leaving that aside, <laughs> my hobby horse is building structures and frameworks because I believe that that is how you get real change done. We need to, it's not enough for one person to just go and, you know, charge up to Parliament Hill. It's like, it's got to be a bigger thing. So I just want to say very quickly, here is from the intro introduction of Animal Law in Australia, a new dialogue. And it says this, our aspiration for this book is to play a small role in helping to usher in a new era for the animal law movement in Australia, Australasia. For the first time, we have a scholarly book written by experts in Australia and New Zealand that focuses on the issues, problems, and perspectives in this part of the world. Our hope is that this book will help inspire a new generation of scholars to see animal law as we do, a discipline rich in potential for critical legal inquiry provoking long-term meaningful change for animals in this hope in this part of the world. 
Uh, questions about the role of law in addressing the treatments of animals need to be brought in from the periphery, where they can be fervently discussed and debated instead of marginalized and ignored. And this is a critical goal for perhaps the greatest obstacle to the better legal treatment of animals is passivity and ongoing acceptance of the status quo, a status quo easily maintained through silence. And that was what we were trying to do. And I think we've, we, 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 I don't want to take sole um, um, responsibility for that because there were a lot of things going on in Australia and New Zealand at that time. But there's no question that that has happened. Since, since writing this book, animal law has gone on to be taught at, you know, close to 15 to 20 schools in Australia and New Zealand. It is regularly debated in mainstream society. And, you know, a lot of the things that we wrote have been adopted in cases and other scholarly works that have really helped push reform in that part of the world. So I'm very proud of this book, and I'm pleased to be celebrating this anniversary. And I'll just give a shout out to my co-editor, Stephen White, from Griffith University in uh, in Queensland, who, who was the, uh, the the other real partner in driving this book forward. Well, congratulations. That's a huge milestone. And this is actually a really good segue around this discussion of legitimizing the field and making it, bringing it to some extent to the mainstream, I think is a great segue into the next thing that we wanted to talk about, which is a huge announcement about something happening this fall in Canada, which is the inaugural Canadian Animal Law Conference, October 4th to 6th, 2019. Mark your calendars. It's going to happen at Dalhousie University. We are co-hosting it in conjunction with the Schulich. How do you say that? Schulich? Schulich. I think it's Schulich. Schulich. (laughs) I should know this. I think the H is silent. I think it's Schulich. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. The C. The C is silent. (laughs) The Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University. Uh, We are organizing this in conjunction with them and in conjunction with Jody Lazar, who is a professor there. So I am excited. I'm excited, too. I'm going to be there. Very excited. Have we uh, call for submissions, Camille? www.canadiananimallawconference.ca. So anybody listening out there who wants to present at this, please make a submission. We look forward to hearing from you. It's going to be a great time. Camille, we haven't officially committed to doing a live paw and order, but I I just think that's going to happen at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, we probably have to. We could do that during the student day, right? Just have a student day and have a live Q&A with students and do like a pawn. I, I really want to do it. I'm like, let's, let's, it's time. Let's do the pawn order. Yeah, I think we should. And on that note, this, so here's the sort of tentative agenda for the conference. It's still early days, so this may change, but the Friday, October 4th, we want to have a student animal law conference really geared at what students want to hear. So things about career opportunities, some scholarship from students, and it's going to be largely student driven. So we'll wait to see about the content for that. And the evening of October 4th, we're having our kickoff event with a really exciting keynote speaker, Peter Singer ethicist, professor at Princeton, and author of the seminal textbook, not textbook, the seminal book, Animal Liberation, which to some extent kicked off the animal rights movement. So that's Mm, Friday night. So cool, huh? Yeah, really exciting. I'm looking forward to every aspect of that. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I've never met Peter Singer, and I've always wanted to, so personally very thrilled about this. Uh, and then Saturday and half a day Sunday, there's going to be conference programming. Um, I, you know, I think we're going to get a lot of submissions for this. So we're considering having a couple different streams and competing events going on. But I promise you the content is going to be exciting. Uh, just the, the number of people that we have now engaged in this field in Canada 
is growing every year. There's some really, really top, uh, great top scholars, great practitioners who are doing this work. And we want to incorporate some international perspectives as well and, and see what we can learn from approaches in other countries. So I think it's going to be an amazing event. Absolutely. Great stuff. What else we got, Camille? I know there are some other announcements. That's not it. No, that's not it. So just a couple housekeeping items. We've mentioned these on the last show, but we are hiring a staff lawyer. If this is your dream job, if you want to come work at Animal Justice and an animal rights lawyer, please check out the show notes. There's a link to the job posting and information about how you can submit an application. The deadline is Monday, February 11th right now. Um, so if you want to get your application in and you're listening to this earlier after it's released, you're still going to have time. So please contact us if this is something that interests you. And then the second thing, again, this is happening Monday, February 11th. So if you're listening to this episode earlier after it's released, you can still make this. But Animal Justice is co-hosting a really cool event in Toronto the evening of February 11th. It's uh, co-hosted with the Animal Law Lab, a working group at U of T Law that works on animal law issues. And it's a guest lecture with Professor Justin Marceau from the University of Denver in Colorado. He is talking about his new book, Beyond Cages, which is a critical look at the animal protection movement's push for the prosecution of animal abusers and questions whether the focus on jailing and incarcerating and punishing people is really uh, in line with the uh, animal liberation movement's philosophy of getting animals out of cages. So very thought-provoking. It's at uh, the Jackman Law Building on Monday, February 11th, room J125 at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Sounds great. Sorry I can't be there. I arrive, as I said last show, I arrive three days too late. Damn. Oh, well, well, let's move into the news, Camille. It has been a very, very busy, well, we've already talked about, you know, two or three of the biggest things that have taken place, but let's hit on some others. Uh, things happening in the Canadian news, one that directly affects animal justice, because we have talked on this show uh, many times before about the Bogart's decision that dealt with the uh, constitutional legitimacy of having the Ontario SPCA prosecute, and that was held to be unconstitutional uh, in Ontario, and we've just found out that the government is going to appeal. That's right. They have filed their notice of appeal in this case, so it is going up to the Ontario Court of Appeal. And um, I understand that uh, Mr. Bogarts, who was the applicant at the lower level, that he'll be cross-appealing as well. Uh, so the, 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 he, he lost on, on um, a couple of issues and, and won on another one. So there's going to be just a full rehearing of all the issues that were raised. Animal Justice, of course, will be there again. We'll seek leave to intervene at the Ontario Court of Appeal. And we'll, of course, be there to make sure that the perspective of what's best for animals and how this system affects them is first and forefront in the case. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to that. We knew that this case was going to go up. Uh, we also believe it has the you know, potential to shake up the uh, animal investigation world. And uh, it, it is really important that we get some of these issues addressed, um, however they get resolved. Uh, and, and it's just, it's, this is one of the bigger cases that we're going to see um, in our lifetime, Camille, I believe, in terms of animal law. And there's very real possibility that this case doesn't stop at the Ontario court. It's a novel issue. It's the type of thing that's going to interest the Supreme Court, uh, regardless of how it's decided. So it's going to, we're in for this for the next couple of years. Very exciting. I think that's exactly right. So we'll keep you posted. 
In other exciting news, and again, this is an issue that we've worked on directly, Bill S-203 has passed second reading. So you'll recall that that's the bill that would ban keeping whales and dolphins in captivity in Canada, as well as importing or exporting them and breeding them in captivity as well. So what this means is that MPs in the House of Commons have now voted to send this bill to the Fisheries Committee, where it will be studied again. It was already studied in the Senate, which is where it originated, but it will go to some further committee hearings, and then it will go back to the House of Commons for a final vote. And assuming it passes that final vote, it becomes law in the land. That is exciting, Camille. What's two questions I have for you? One, uh, are we likely to see you in front of the Fisheries Committee in future? And two, uh, how does everything look from what you can tell uh, in terms of getting this passed? Well, I'll definitely inquire about testifying and and see if I can offer any useful information to the Fisheries Committee. One thing that comes up a lot with respect to this bill is uh, opponents of the bill keep, keep saying things like, oh, this is unconstitutional because... It regulates animals, and only the provinces can do that, and, and that's ridiculous. It's This is a perfectly legitimate exercise of federal authority, so that's something I might be able to speak to. So we'll see about that. Yeah, it's interesting that we had a question on that in the last bill, or at least I did. And, uh, you know, it didn't, I won't get into the, the, the dimensions of the question because I didn't think the question made perfect sense as it was stated. But but it does seem to me that uh, federalism seems to be the least of the concerns. I mean, my God, we just saw federalism uh, come up in the OSPCA case. And there was a real question about whether or not it's unconstitutional. And the court was like, look, these are both valid areas of domain. And it seems to me that the federal government has the right to come in and do something in a particular way. And uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, I I think the federalism angle is, you know, not that powerful. No, I agree. And I think it's just something the opponents of the bill are using, because frankly, they have nothing else. They know that public opinion is very firmly on the side of this legislation. And to your second question about how things are looking, I think it's looking pretty good. Our our main issue here, it's not support for the bill. Uh, We've got pretty strong statements now from many members of the government caucus. The NDP is all supportive. Uh, A number of conservatives are as well. Obviously, Green Party leader Elizabeth May is the sponsor. So there's support among parliamentarians, but the main question we're running into is timing. So can this get through the Fisheries Committee before June when there's a spring or when there's when the House rises before the election? And will it get to a vote before then? So I'm going to get on my hobby horse again, perhaps predictably. Oh, no. And just remind everybody that you should contact your MP, tell them this bill must pass, tell them it should not be amended, and that if we amend it, it'll have to go back to the Senate, it'll take too long, it'll definitely die before the election, and we don't want that. So please don't wait to contact your MP. You heard it. Good. All right. And finally... Oh, no, we don't have finally. We've got a couple more items. Two more. Uh, Two more. Camille, you've told me that California is looking at banning fur trapping, like, from the whole state, like, no more fur trapping at all? Yeah, amazingly, huh? They're they're considering banning fur trapping right across the state of California. As um, wow. a Congress or an assemblywoman put forward a, a bill called the Wildlife Protection Act of 2019, And this is largely in response to the concerns of wildlife advocates who say that fur trapping is very cruel. They're absolutely right. Trapped animals are strangled, shot, or beaten to death. And really, it's uh, for the trappers, it's about not damaging the pelts before skinning them. It's, It's not about animals being treated well. 
Um, there's concerns about this industry decimating vulnerable wild populations. And one thing I found really interesting about this Los Angeles Times article that uh, details the bill is that there's only about six dozen trappers still working in the state of California, which apparently is mm. down for down from more than 5,000 about 100 years ago. And mm. proponents of the bill are saying that the uh, the fees paid by trappers, they don't even cover the cost of implementing and regulating the trapping industry. So taxpayers are subsidizing this horrible, unnecessary, cruel commercial activity because the costs of running it don't even come close to uh, what the state recovers in trapping license fees. So I really enjoy that economic argument to it in addition to Me all the too. concerns. I, I, I think there comes a time, like I think that's the way that's the way so many of these animal issues are won, quite frankly, Camille. Like we've talked about this before, like the idea of incremental regulation, right? So what you have is a lot of these things are designed to make it more and more difficult for the animal user. I'll go with user, to do what they want to do. And then at a certain point, you reach a point where it's economically unfeasible or it's no longer possible to regulate because there aren't enough people doing it. And that's when you move to a ban. Like, I think that's that's the way we win a lot of these things. We've seen it with circuses. We've seen it with whales and aquariums. We've seen it in all these areas where essentially what happens is the public pressure and the the the, the incremental cost of regulation makes it so darn difficult to do it properly. We saw it with elephants in zoos, right? It's the same idea. It's just you, you essentially close the figurative noose and then eventually that's the time when you come in with a ban. Because I think the history of animal law uh, reform shows that if you get too aggressive with your ban at an early stage, it becomes very difficult to sustain. Yeah, I think that's right. You need to move in conjunction with society's views. And when in the case of fur, fur prices are always going up and down, but they've been plummeting recently. So when trappers aren't getting as much for the fur pelts that they're trying to sell, fewer trappers are out there trapping. It becomes more expensive for the state to regulate. It becomes less of an industry that the state feels like it needs to support or protect. And eventually there's political will and strong public support, obviously, for such a ban. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Camille, our final story of the day. Oh, God. No, no, no. Not again. No, 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 no. Oh, this this feels very selective, Camille. It feels like we're picking on Alberta. Well, I don't know. We kind of are. Like, it seems like every episode we have a new Alberta cruelty case, and today is no exception. This Wasn't there a sad. barn fire somewhere, Camille? Wasn't there a barn fire in Ontario? Oh, <laughs> there's like, always a barn fire somewhere. There's always every a week. barn fire. Ugh. And, and I can say that our zero, thankfully, is not from the province of Alberta. So at least we're getting off the hook there. Yeah, yeah. But why don't you fill us in on this Alberta cruelty case? Oh, uh, boy. This is a big case out of central Ontario, Alberta. And the reason it's a big case is it's a farm case. There you go. It's a farm case. Uh, I call it... You know my name for these, uh, I call these the apocalypse farms because mm. I like to say that before uh, before there will be a prosecution of a neglect case on a farm, it's got to look like the second coming of the apocalypse. That's always been my view. I have yet to see cases where that hasn't been true. Um, and this is one of them. Uh, this was uh, an apocalypse farm near Red Deer. And uh, um, essentially, uh, uh, it's more or less a hobby farm with 105 animals. And the testimony, uh, from a vet who's been working with livestock for 30 years said this is number one on the list of bad farms, the worst conditions I've ever seen. Um, the conditions were 
unbelievably horrendous animals uh, suffering from lice, parasites, not eating properly, horses and donkeys with hoof issues. It goes on and on and on. And what we're dealing with... uh, Uh, The couple, to their credit, pleaded guilty uh, under charges to the Animal Protection Act. Well, let's talk about the Animal Protection Act, Camille. Wait, Peter, hold on. Do you mean to tell me they weren't prosecuted criminally? They were prosecuted provincially? That is correct. This continues an ever-present an ever-present trend with very few exceptions that farmers will only be prosecuted under provincial legislation. I think it is a, 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 a... I think it's a disgrace. Uh, I don't uh, fault the uh, Crown in this case. I understood. I've actually spoken with the Crown in this case, and I believe that there were the charges were laid uh, by the SPCA, and uh, they were laid provincially, and that is a very common theme, some fear that you can't get uh, uh, federal cruelty charges uh, convictions entered, and the truth of the matter is there's no reason why you couldn't in this case. The level of distress, the level of pain and suffering that these animals must have felt would have made it ripe for criminal charges, and instead we're looking at uh, provincial charges with fines of up to $20,000. I know that the Crown in this case, and we'll put a link to the show notes, is trying to get jail time based on an application of a different act. Um, I personally think that's unlikely to occur. I don't think that's possible uh, given the way the Animal Protection Act is worded, but we'll see. Um, But I do think this shows some of the concerns that arise, some of the things that can go wrong on a farm, and of course uh, our constant plea that uh, cases of this nature, when we're not talking about, you know, uh, failing to abide with certain farming regulations, the few that may actually exist, uh, we're talking about, you know, a complete long-term starvation and disease of animals like this should not happen no there is there's no excuse for this the we'll post a link to the article that explains this case in a bit more detail but the the headline of the article is interesting it's it's quote love just isn't enough (laughs) says the crown in an animal neglect case and the, the reason that comes up is because the defendants claimed, you know, they loved the animals. They were trying to take care of them, and they recognized that they had too many of them on their hobby farm, but they'd all been rescued, and they just really, really loved them. And I think the headline's accurate, Peter. Love is not enough. Animals need Yeah, food. I agree. They need water. They need shelter. They need medical attention. Um, it's not enough just to consider yourself an animal lover and, and think that that's going to be good for them. We've seen this before. We've seen what I call hoarding cases, not so much with farms, but with cats. And, you know, you have these cat lovers who love cats so much they keep hundreds of them in in disease-ridden conditions. And it's like there's often mental illness. I mean, the criminal justice system isn't pretty. You get a lot of people who are sick and they take care of these animals. And you get other people who just love animals so much that they get overwhelmed by the situation that they're in. And frankly, we can't leave the animals in these conditions. And, and, And the fact that you love them and get overwhelmed overwhelmed by them. I'll slap you with a prohibition order so fast it'll make your head spin. Like, I just don't care. I don't care about your love and the fact that things went wrong and you couldn't see a way out of it. You took vulnerable beings into your care and you didn't treat them the way they needed to be treated. And we're not talking about, you know, a few at the edges. I didn't have enough money for the vet to take my dog. That wasn't great. But, you know, whatever. That stuff's not good either. We're talking about long term. You have way too many animals. The animals are falling apart and you are, you know, continuing to live your life. So I don't know. These are these are troubling cases. There's evidence in this case, by the way. I, I give a lot of credit to the Crown, uh, Brittany Ashmore, who, who got their bank records to show that the couple had spent money 
quite a bit. Like the couple had money. You know what I mean? They went to a hotel one night. They spent money at Tim Hortons. They were getting three hundred dollars at Tim Hortons. Yeah, there's like there is there is there is money. There, you know, I just anyway, it's very troubling to uh, to 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 these types of cases, and I think uh, I look forward to seeing what happens. This case sentencing will take place in April, so we'll get a sense. We'll follow up on that and see where this case is at. Mm, sounds good. All right, we're okay. getting into our main topic, and uh, I'm sitting this one out. I know that uh, my co-host Camille Lapchuk has had an interesting interview. Yeah, I just sat down with Edie Bowles, a UK animal protection lawyer, for a really interesting conversation about the UK uh, situation for animals and the fact that she is opening the UK's very first animal law firm. Here we go. Okay, and for our main interview today, I'm really excited to welcome my good friend Edie Bowles from the UK as our special overseas guest. And Edie, I think that you're actually our first guest from off the continent. So welcome. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a delight. So, uh, Edie, you and I first met just over the course of the last year through animal law stuff. Um, but your background briefly is that you're an animal protection lawyer and a trustee and student group manager for the UK Centre for Animal Law, also known as A-Law. And that's kind of like animal justice in a sense in the UK. And also mm. a solicitor and co-founder of an exciting new law firm, Advocates for Animals. <laughs> so we're really excited to have you here today and talk about some of the issues faced by animal lawyers in the UK and everything that you've been up to. So how did, remind me how we first got to know each other. I, I can't even recall. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, it's so great to be able to talk to you today. I've listened to Poor and Order, so it just feels like such a privilege to actually be on the show. Um, yeah, so how did we meet? Well, Tiffany, um, a fellow Canadian... She um, was studying, Tiffany Mitchell was studying um, at, uh, studying at the University of Leicester in the UK and she's a very um, incredible, proactive student, now graduate. Yeah, shout out to Tiffany who's probably shout listening. Out to we love you, Tiffany yeah. Mitchell. <laughs> we love her, but she's, uh, well, she's now actually involved in the UK Centre of Animal Law with me. Anyway, she arranged um, a conference at her university, the University of Leicester, and I believe you, I was, I, I attended in person but you, I believe, um, streamed in, streamed in, is that the right term? Skyped in. Oh, <laughs> Skyped right, in. Right you are. Skyped in. So you actually didn't meet me, but I saw you, so that's very creepy. I um, I saw you long before you even knew I existed. <laughs> but um, Tiffany, Tiffany put us in touch afterwards via email, and then you and I just started talking, really. And I, I think that, I mean, we met quite a bit after that but um for me it was just so great to have your contact details because everything you you're doing and have done you know are, are things that I'm just starting to do so it's such a an incredible <laughs> useful resource to have access to someone that's kind of already um you know paved the way so I found that really really useful and then um I think we just continued to email and then eventually well, then you, then you came over to the UK, you know, you came over for the International Vegan Rights Alliance Conference in Scotland, and then a month later, the Oxford Summer School. So in between those two conferences, we met in London, 
And um, oh yeah, yeah we and we went to time. like a fabulous London vegan beer festival, which was really really fun. <laughs> and had oh lots of good gosh. vegan food lots of good vegan beer and uh yeah you're right then we we spent some time together at the oxford center for animal ethics summer school in oxford uh in july where we both presented well i that's great and i'm i'm getting a lot of different friendship too because i'm learning so much more about the situation in the uk and uh you know especially this perception in Canada that the UK is so much farther ahead of Canada and North America on animal law questions and just in general mm. about the, the public feeling of, towards animals. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Mm. Um, I would yeah. love for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background and what inspired you to become an animal rights lawyer in the first place. How did you get into it? Okay. Um, yeah, so I think um, a seminal moment for me was when I was young, so maybe around seven-ish. Um, my granddad was actually a dairy farmer. And even though I don't really remember much about that process, because he stopped, I guess, some time within my childhood, I do remember, I vividly remember seeing the calves and just loving them and, you know, going over to them every time I'd go to my granddad's farm and just having this kind of magical connection. You know, these calves were so friendly and inquisitive. And I, would, I you know, I remember their tongues licking my hands and just having you know sharing these amazing moments with these animals and I think that really you know exposed me to that link between animals and the consumption of those animals and their produce from such a young age and yeah even back then it just really did not sit well so I think from that moment I mean even though you know as kids we all love animals I think from that moment of having the kind of um, penny drop so to speak I just you know there was kind of no going back but I I'm you know I I don't know about you, but I think that most people, when they kind of consider themselves an animal lover as a child or an adolescent, they think that the correct job for them is maybe becoming a vet or something like that. Oh, that's so, so I think true. I kind of, yeah. So I think I kind of thought I'd be a vet for a while. But then I think eventually, I think my personality always kind of <laughs> leaned towards the debates of life. And so I think then I started to consider becoming a lawyer. But I still didn't really consider animal law, even as you know, a, a really vocal animal advocate, you know, with my friends and people I'd meet, I still just didn't consider animal law. I don't, I, there, there wasn't really any exposure to it. There weren't courses at university. There wasn't really an awareness of the different animal laws out there. Right. And I guess so, it, it just hasn't historically been really much of a field anywhere. It's only within the yeah. last... 10 years in Canada, for sure. Um, I know maybe the situation is similar in the UK, where people started to think of it seriously as a discipline. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just, I mean, I cared, but I just assumed that my career would probably be in something like human rights law, or perhaps, um, you know, maybe even intellectual property. Well, I actually did intellectual property for a bit. But uh, yeah, I, I just historically or you know through that process did not think that animal law would be a possibility. However, at some point along that legal career it must have popped into my consciousness because I remember just one day googling animal law UK and the UK centre for animal law popped up and yeah I, I kind of from that very from that moment from very early on having seen that this body existed this organisation existed I got heavily involved I started to volunteer and um, yeah set up the student group so just to kind of explain a bit about what the UK centre for animal law is it's um a UK charity. I'm a trustee for it. And like I said, run the student group. And it's this organisation. It's kind of similar to animal justice, but it's not, it's not a law practice. They're more of an educational, uh, they have more of an educational focus. They bring together 
experts in the field, you know, scientists, lawyers, campaigners, and anyone really interested in animal law. So it's more of a hub of those expertise rather than a practice. Um, yeah, and we also have a very active student group where we produce um, a biannual magazine, an essay competition. We work with students across the UK to promote animal law in their institute in their institutions. So that's kind of a law. But in, anyway, so this was eight years ago. I started to get involved with them, and I'm still very involved. But even then, I still thought that I would have to be, you know, an intellectual property lawyer and get my animal law fixed through volunteering. I didn't really, there weren't, there weren't really any jobs at the time. Right. However, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I didn't really ever kind of foresee this happening. However, around three years ago, an opportunity for an in-house position came up at Cruelty Free International. Um, for your listeners that aren't aware, Cruelty Free International is um, an anti-animal research charity. And naturally, as someone that you know, really cared about this area, I jumped at the opportunity and haven't looked back. Wow, and what since... an amazing start to your animal law career, to jumping in uh, with uh, such a cool organization. And, and it has a long history in the UK, from what I understand, that it used to be called the, um, remind me? British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. Right, the BUAV, BUAV, which anyone involved in animal testing issues has definitely heard of the organization. And I, I love that the international expansion has, has let the, the group do even more. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they've done great work and they continue to, to do great work. Um, but yeah, even at that point, I mean, so that's been wonderful and I've learned so much and it's it's just been a great experience. I'm very lucky the opportunity came up. But even from very early on at Cruelty Free International, there was always... Um, the idea to set up an animal law firm, which not only did work in the animal research field, but also covered other areas of animal law, all areas of animal law, in fact. And so this goal has always been the, you know, it's always been there, but it's just taken time to set up. And here we are with, uh, you know, with the launch having happened, but the official launch happening early March. Yeah, so let's get into that. So you are a co-founder of Advocates for Animals. And as I understand, this is the very first UK-based law firm focused exclusively on animal law and, and working for the good guys. Mm, that is correct. <laughs> and so uh, you have started it with a, a colleague from Cruelty Free International, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, what has been involved in getting the firm set up? I imagine it's been a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's been a hell of a lot. At the moment, um, we're just kind of preparing for the launch, then all the PR that's kind of that we want to do around that. So it's been very manic. And on top of that, we've had um, client work already. We've really hit the ground running actually with client work. Oh, amazing! However, yeah, so it's been it's been, we've been we've been very fortunate so far. But um, just a shout out to Vanessa. She's the newest member of our team. She's the admin manager at Advocates for Animals, and honestly, without her. I don't know what I'd do. She's really picked up the slack with organising the launch and various other tasks. So I'm incredibly grateful for her um, addition to the team. Um, yeah, so so we've just kind of been up to that. I mean, and, I don't and know. You're having want... a, a launch party, I understand. Do you want to fill people in on that a little bit? On the launch party? Oh, gosh. I wish I could come. Yeah, I know. I wish. I really wish you could be there. It's going to be great. Um, yeah, so we're having a launch early March. The plan is to invite all our clients and all our future clients and other interested um, stakeholders. The launch itself is taking place. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Earthling Ed. Um, I know you're familiar with him. But yeah. he's just uh, his organization, Surge, has just set up 
um, a restaurant in East London called Unity Diner. So the launch party is taking place there. But oh, the launch is cool. really, it's just, it's just an opportunity to commemorate, you know, to really um, celebrate the fact that this uh, kind of landmark in animal law in the UK is, is happening. Oh, well, I think that's I'm, the right move. I, I, animal justice takes yeah. every opportunity we can to celebrate, get together, bring the community into one location and celebrate our victories and accomplishments. So I think it's important to have that sort of physical sense of community for these things. So good on you. No, thanks. I mean, it's, yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, it's also another opportunity to uh, to have a party as well. So <laughs> it's not, <laughs> all, it's like not all work. Exactly. So I'm really looking forward to it. But I am... Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's that's the launch. But and like so, I said, we've also got loads of client work, so it's hard to even think about that. And let's get into that a little bit. I'm curious to know what type of work you will be doing and are already doing on behalf of clients. What type of work is there in the UK? What do people need mm. done? Okay, so, I mean, predominantly we'll be working with animal protection organisations, um, not doing the kind of general council stuff, so not doing charity law, employment law, those kind of things, but rather we'll be dealing with the intersection between animals and the law um we've been doing this type of work for years anyway david's been doing it much longer than me so i don't i don't even know if i've, I've explained who david is but david thomas is the, the the co-founder of advocates for animals as well who i worked with at cruelty free international um the work uh, that we'll do um has con- has included and will continue to include Things like judicial review. So I'm sure you have something similar in Canada as a Commonwealth country. Yeah, we do. But this being, you know, the court reviewing the legality of a decision made by a public body. Just to give you an example, I won't go into the details of a case, but whilst at Cruelty Free International, we've done several judicial reviews against the government, so the Home Office, the Department, um, the Department of the Government, who um, they're, the, they're the, the department that license animal research projects. So we've done a few judicial reviews where we've challenged um, certain licences on the grounds that we think they shouldn't have been granted for various legal reasons. And I'm sure you'll agree that judicial review is just an extremely important tool to keep regulate to hold regulators to account, as much as the perpetrator, really, because so many of these problems are actually systemic. It's not as simple as a bad apple. And judicial review is a way around that. It's a way of challenging the actual systems in place. So we'll probably be continuing to do um, judicial reviews for our clients. Um, we'll also continue to do freedom of information work. So again, I'm sure you're very familiar with freedom of information and what that means. Um, you know, the right, uh, the right for all of us, actually, to um, receive information, to request and receive information held by a public body. And again, you know, freedom of information is obviously crucial for campaigns, keeping the public informed, and again, holding public bodies to account. I don't know, I, I mean, I'm sure you've had a very similar experience to us because it seems to be the same <laughs> wherever there's these um, freedom of information uh, laws, but, you know, our requests are often refused and all manner of exemptions are thrown at us. And quite often, if we do eventually get hold of the information, you know, after going to a tribunal, it's um, clear why the public body resisted um, or withheld the information because either they've been lying or the practice in question is particularly controversial. So I just think this really highlights why freedom of information is such an important um, 
tool within the kind of animal law field. Oh, I couldn't and agree also, more. Just yeah. transparency from corporations is difficult enough to get, but at least we as citizens have the right to some sort of transparency from governments. And that right really relies on people like you going to court and enforcing it or going to tribunals and enforcing it and making sure that the government doesn't unlawfully hide information that might be damaging, although bad for animals. No, absolutely. It's so important. I mean, I just, I'll give you a, a brief example of a, of a case we've, we've done before. I'm, I won't go into all the details because it's too long for, you know, for here and now. But we, uh, a few years ago, there was an undercover investigation at a university that conducts animal research. Uh, it's called Imperial College London. Um, this investigation revealed lots of breaches of the Animals and Scientific Procedures Act. The, uh, investigation was obviously shown to the public there was a large there was you know public outcry there was an inquiry on the back of this investigation as a result of that or at least i think as a result of that imperial college london started to produce these annual reports these very glossy annual reports that showcased the work that imperial college do Within the first report, there was a, a line that said, there was a sentence that said, you know, animals receive round-the-clock care. This was obviously, oh, this came as a shock to us because one of the things that was revealed within the undercover investigation was a very much was very much a nine-to-five attitude. So, you know, we were really interested in what it means, you know, what, what, what does round-the-clock care mean for these animals? So we did a freedom of information request asking for the additional hours that animals receive care. Anyway, the information was refused. Um, I mean, obviously, if it was round the clock, it should have been quite a straightforward answer anyway. But the information was withheld. It wasn't disclosed. Um, we challenged it. So the, the reasons uh, the reasons it was withheld, um, the arguments made by Imperial College was um, that a hypothetical, a hypothetical intruder would know the hours that the care staff were at the facility and therefore they could attack and therefore there'd be a, you know, there was a risk to health and safety, both physically and mentally. Oh, wow. That's so interesting to me because we encounter exactly the same issue in Canada. Anytime you do a freedom of information request for anything to do with a government inspection of a lab, which doesn't really happen except in the province of Ontario in the first place. But uh, pretty much all of that, they just refuse to disclose because they say it could threaten the safety of laboratory workers, which I find ridiculous, easy, because uh, there's never been an incident of violence towards somebody who works in the lab. A lot of the details of these experiments are already published in publicly accessible journal articles. And uh, oh. we don't, you know, we don't do the same thing with farm inspection reports, which is another area of animal abuse. It's just a, a really strange way that this has developed. No, absolutely. And interestingly enough, exactly that. We, we, we challenged, we challenged this uh, refusal on the grounds that, you know, animal extremism is at an animal, you know, rights extremism is at an all time low. Um, this hypothetical intruder might know the hours of the care staff, but they're not going to know the hours that other staff are there. So, for example, a security guard might be there. And finally, this report that they were publishing, that the university were publishing, had the names and faces of care staff within it. So it just seemed really bizarre that suddenly <laughs> there was this, you know, this this fear of this hypothetical intruder, yet the, the, you know, the details were already there displayed. And so we challenged this, we went to a tribunal, and the tribunal found in our favour and the information was disclosed. And sure enough, the hours were exactly the same as they had been 
um, during the investigation, during the undercover investigation. So I just, again, just think that highlights why freedom of information is just so important. So important. So important not just to roll over and, and say, okay, well, if that's all you're going to give us, I guess that's all we're going to get. It's totally incumbent upon us to challenge the government at every step of the way on this freedom of information issue or, or we'll never get transparency. Well, no, that's, absolutely. That's super interesting. Well, um, I'm also really curious about the UK animal law framework. And I know a lot of our Canadian listeners, especially, and we have listeners in other countries too, who I'm, I'm sure will be curious about this, would, would like to know in what ways our countries are similar and what ways they're different. So Canada obviously is a Commonwealth country and so much of our legal system is based on what you folks started in the UK. Yet at the same mm. time, uh, public attitudes towards animal protection, I mean, your country, like when I was over there this summer, it was just astounding to me. I woke up one morning and on the TV in the hotel, there was a BBC report about whether the UK might just straight out ban sales of fur or maybe it was import of fur. And that was being taken seriously as a discussion, mm. whereas in Canada, we would we would never get to that point. So I'm curious mm. to know, you know, a few things about the country uh, I don't know where you want to start, but we could talk about um, farming standards, for instance, um, and how well, those differ from what we have in Canada. Sure. I mean, I just we maybe just start um, on what you said about fur farms. So I think you're right. I think we do have a perception that we're this this gold standard, but I think that we have to be careful with that because we have to separate <laughs> what the perception is and what the actual reality is. So, you know, you, you mentioned the fur farms, you know, that it was, um, oh, sorry, you mentioned the import of fur and that was taken seriously. And, and you know, these politicians were all kind of falling over themselves to come out with the best um, animal welfare policy. But, you know, th there is a huge difference between... Um, them saying this and then what's actually going on in practice the reality is that in the UK illegal fox hunting is still taking place a badger curl to attempt to prevent the spread of TB to cattle has just been extended despite the fact that it's discredited by reputable scientists and there's not been sufficient evidence that TB has even been reduced since the curl started you know for a popu population of 65 million around 1 billion animals are farmed and slaughtered every year you know, lawful farming practices within the UK include all-round indoor housing, live exports, castration of pigs, tail dockings. You know, we use four million animals in research every year, not to mention that we have poor enforcement. So, yes, I agree that, you know, we probably are, you know, one of the better countries compared to some other countries. That still is not enough. That's nowhere near enough. And the reality does not reflect all the kind of noise that, is sometimes heard. Yeah, and that's interesting. And I've heard the same thing, well, from others from the UK, from uh, New Zealand, which is often regarded as having a better system compared to Canada's as well. Same thing with Switzerland, our, our, our Swiss friends who run the organization over there would, would probably echo your sentiments. Um, it's, it's one thing for us to look from the outside and say, oh, it's so much better over there. But, uh, you know, for the animals on the ground, the, the practical reality is, is not that dissimilar. Mm. Well, uh, one hot topic that's been coming up a lot, of course, in the UK and discussions about animal welfare over there, I understand is is what the Brexit uh, deal or lack of deal or whatever ends up happening might mm. mean for animal welfare in, um, in the kingdom. Do you, w what would you say you think might be the major implications? 
Okay, so um, just as a side note, I heard um, a news reporter say the other day that people are no longer split by leave or remain, but by those who care and those who don't. And <laughs> it does <laughs> it does really feel like that in the UK at the moment, just because it's been going on for so long. But You're just yeah, sick of it. The- <laughs> well, I'm trying not to be because I'm very aware it's probably the most important thing that will happen in my lifetime. But um, it's, definitely, it's definitely dragging on. And it's also that it's just... Uh, there's just so much uncertainty, but I, I mean, and including around the animal stuff. But uh, yeah, no, the, Brexit will have a huge um, impact on animals. Um, maybe not immediately, but there's definitely um, potential for there to be um, a huge shift in animal welfare law and policy. So, from what what I understand right now, the situation is that uh, in the UK you adhere to European Union standards that the EU has adopted for animals used in a variety of areas but would you would you think it's fair to say that uk attitudes toward animals are more progressive than the the rest of the eu and do you think that means that if the uk leaves the eu you might be able to enact even stronger laws than exist right now oh so yes and no to that question i mean some of the standards have come from the EU, but some of those standards have come from the EU on the back of the UK being a strong, you know, advocate for animals within the EU. So it's hard to know, um, you know, who the main influencer is from, from, you know, from these EU laws. There's definitely potential. I mean, the the position of the animal protection groups is that uh, what the bottom line is that we just do not want any dilution of standards. That's the that's the bottom line, you know. And of course, then we want to grab any opportunities they are. But the bottom line is no dilution of standards. The government have kind of assured the reassured that reassured us and the the public that that's what's going to happen. But you know that there, there are risks, and already we are seeing um, we are seeing a dilution of of standards or a potential dilution of standards. I mean, just to just a few issues that kind of come to mind in relation to this. So, um, in relation to uh, what we were talking about earlier about when you were here in the UK and on the news, you saw the fur import story and the possibility of that being. Um, of that actually being enacted, enacted within the UK, all of the all of the conversations around um, around animal protections while you're here in the UK were kind of all on the back of a sentience issue that came up in Parliament. So under Article 13 of the EU Treaty, animals are recognised as sentient beings whose welfare must be given full regard when formulating policy, and this applies to all public bodies within the member states. Article 13, however, was not carried into the UK by the Withdrawal Act, which essentially just means Article 13 is going to fall away. So right. there's huge pub, there's huge public outcry about this, um, suggesting that you know the government didn't view animals as sentient. And on the back of this, the government responded with a draft bill and lots of other promises about you know dilution of there not being a dilution of standards. So I truly do believe that that was a kind of um, kind of catalyst and why everyone then started all the all the different parties started talking about animal welfare issues um so yeah so um the government responded to this outcry with a draft bill that recognized animals as sentient however the bill only required regard not full regard and it only needed to be given by ministers of the crown rather than all public bodies when implementing policy. So as you can see, this is already a dilution of Article 13. Um, due to criticism for various reasons, this bill has since um, been dropped. 
However, there is an ongoing campaign to ensure that Article 13, the Article 13 standard does not get weakened or, you know, or simply just fall away. So that's that's the first example that comes to mind with um, the risks attached to Brexit and uh, the possibility of yeah of, of weakening of standards. Um, another another thing that I've I've recently come across. So the Brexit Withdrawal Act um, gave some unique powers to the government regarding secondary legislation. Uh, relating to the transposition of EU law into UK law or amendments to UK law we already have that reference EU re- that reference the EU. Um, you can understand why they've done this. This is obviously because on Brexit Day we're going to have all of these pieces of legislation with references to you know EU bodies that we're no longer uh, part of th- those kind right, of things. So right. so I do understand why these special powers were granted. It makes sense. So the, oh, so sorry, the special powers basically is a kind of like a streamlined process uh, through Parliament, essentially. Um, and again, like you can understand why it's because there's there's just a huge amount um, of laws that need to be amended, uh, you know, uh, by using these secondary uh, legislate pieces of legislation. Um, so not only is this kind of potentially um, preventing debates over a piece of legislation that otherwise might have been subject to, to debates, there's also uh, occasionally there, there may be problems with removing references to the EU. So, for example, a piece of secondary legislation that's recently gone through in relation to the Animals and Scientific Procedures Act has removed all the references to the EU bodies. However, the EU bodies were providing um, oversight to, you know, certain research practices. So it seems like a really kind of inoffensive thing to do, but actually that's a level of oversight that now doesn't exist. So it's it's things like that that we've just got to be, um, we've got to just keep our eye on, really. Right. So there might be an enforcement disruption or an oversight disruption and I guess at that point, it'll just be up to UK citizens to be vocal enough about this to encourage the government to actually close these gaps and, and not let them um, move no, along indefinitely. Well, well it's absolutely, obviously super yeah. complicated. Wow. It, it's it's incredibly complicated. And, the, and there's just so much of it. And there's so much, you know, noise. And there's so many competing priorities in the Brexit debate that it's it's a very, very uh, complicated and muddy process yeah um, no i can appreciate yeah. that it would be difficult given all the issues raised by brexit to get any airtime for the animal ones when people are concerned about their livelihoods and border issues and all of the rest of that exactly i mean well this is the, this is the great thing actually so the uk center for animal law has been coordinating um kind of a coalition of animal groups around 40 i think um to act as kind of a as to act as one voice really on animal issues so of course groups will have their various campaigns outside of it but it's been really important to just have one united voice so for example that sentience uh issue i spoke about earlier that's um that's being dealt with by this coalition we also produced a brexit manifesto that just kind of um all the groups agreed on some you know some fundamental bottom lines and asks so I think that's been really important due to you know due to the fact that there is just so much fragmentation of issues going on at the moment well and and good that there is an animal law organization that's able to take on that type of leading voice because uh you know I find sometimes that given that's the type of area within the expertise of lawyers that it's of huge assistance to the the rest of the community and the rest of the organizations out there to have lawyers kind of take on that leading role no, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, no, no. It's just been it's it's been a really um, incredible and reassuring process actually to just see 
everyone uniting because I think that it just reminds you that everyone's priority is the animals, are the animals. And so, yeah, that's, that's just been an incredibly reassuring mm. aspect of, of the whole Brexit debacle. Mm-hmm. But um, just, just so, I mean, this kind of doesn't sound as positive as, as I'd like it to, but um, you know, there, there are, there are positives that can come from Brexit. You mentioned earlier, you know, are there opportunities that can be grabbed? And absolutely there are. The, the fur thing, the fur import ban you mentioned earlier, that wouldn't have been possible uh, while we're in the uh, EU because we have the free movement of goods. And so fur farms within the EU are able to import, well, export from their countries into the UK. So we wouldn't have been able to have an import ban. Um, however, whether we actually do have an import ban, I, I'm not so sure. But, you know, it's a possibility now when it wouldn't have been when in the EU. And yeah. on top of that, the, the the main one that everyone thinks of um, in terms of the kind of potential benefits when it comes to Brexit is the uh, possibility of banning live exports. You know, I'm sure you're aware exporting animals huge distances causes a massive amount of suffering and distress and you know public opinion is against these long journeys well you know whilst in the eu like i said the uk aren't able to ban the export to the eu due to free movement so an advantage of brexit yeah it is the possibility of banning this the uh Government have said that they were considering a ban post-Brexit. However, the current deal that's on the table, the draft deal that's on the table, um, seems to suggest that that's not possible due to, due to the, I don't know how much you know about the <laughs> Northern Ireland backstop, but <laughs> due to, yeah, due, due to a, a separate issue, it does seem like it now, it, it might be unlikely to, to ban live exports. But again, I mean, Again, the, these things are made possible by by Brexit. Yeah, that's definitely encouraging. And at least citizens will now have the opportunity to draw more attention to that issue and get laws in place if, if there's political will to do that. So that's encouraging. I wanted Ooh. to ask you as well about uh, an issue that we've worked on a bit in Canada and we've spoken about on this podcast before. Uh, and that's doing um, legal work around making sure that people who choose to be vegan for animal protection reasons, for ethical reasons, mm-hmm. that they uh, have the right to live free from discrimination by public institutions in the UK. And I, I know you've done a lot of this and you're involved with uh, the International Vegan Rights Alliance, which has done much of this work as well. I wonder if you could speak mm-hmm. a little bit about your involvement. My involvement in this area is through advocating um, for the... Uh, protections of vegan rights in law. I think there are so many misunderstandings around this. I think people are either confused that, um, that, you know, they're confused, they don't understand why a diet is being included in human rights legislation, or they just think it's another example of human rights going too far, and they see us all as a bunch of snowflake vegans. But I think the reality, um, it's neither of those things. It actually has very little to do with veganism per se, and is more a reflection of the fact that in a democracy, different belief systems need to be protected. Um, you know, it's not an absolute right. And of course, it's subject to the balancing act um, against other rights. But as a starting point, I think we at least have to have the principle that, you know, that different beliefs should be recognised to, you know, to ensure pluralism. Um, so within the UK, the kind of following laws are relevant so the European Convention of Human Rights, um, this only applies to public bodies, but um, that includes courts. So if there was a dispute between two private individuals, the courts um, 
should decide the case in accordance with human rights legislation. Well, anyway, Article 9 of the Euro- European Convention of Human Rights um, states that everyone has the right to th- freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Um, the Equality Act, this is a UK law, this act covers um, protected characteristics against discrimination, harassment, victimisation and employment and as users of private and public services. Um, Section 10 of the Equality Act makes a belief a protected characteristic and a belief means not only a religious belief but a philosophical belief. And there's a case uh, case called Granger versus Nicholson and basically this defined a philosophical belief as a cogent, serious, cohesive and important belief. So I think from that legislation and case you can see how eth- ethical veganism would fit into those definitions. Um And in fact, the European Court of Human Rights has found veganism within the scope of European human rights law. And uh, the UK courts have kind of come very close to saying as much as well. I mean, vegetarianism has been labelled as a protected characteristic. There was someone who was fired for being anti-fox hunting. um, And he was able to... uh, get protection under the Equality Act, as the judge kind of um, in summary stated that animal welfare affected every area of his life. And as such, his beliefs were cogent, serious, coherent and important. So again, I think that from that case law, you can see that it's only um, it's only natural that veganism would also slot into that. And interestingly enough, we actually haven't had a case within the UK that's determined you know, vegan, veganism categorically yet. And we actually have the first case coming up, I think around March. So next Ooh, month. Um, exciting. Yeah, specifically asking if veganism is a protected characteristic. Uh, I think, again, there's a lot of misinformation and I don't think the public quite understand. But when you see what actually, you know, what it means and how it does slot into human rights and the kind of rationale behind human rights, you can see why it does make sense that ethical veganism should be included. Uh, totally. I mean, if, when we're talking about belief systems, uh, many of the people who go vegan for ethical reasons, it really does inform every aspect of their being. They have this philosophy of doing no harm or as little harm as they can humanly uh, get away with. And I think it's just so obvious to me that that type of belief system is just as important to to many people who hold it as religious belief systems are, as other types of belief systems are. And so it makes total sense. Uh, do you have any other examples of, of types of cases where this might come up? I, I hear or I sometimes see news stories about school lunch programs in the UK. Mm. Yeah, gosh, absolutely. Oh, um, I can't probably recall all off the top of my head, but you're absolutely right. So where, you know, where a kid's going to school and that school is responsible for, for the, the lunches of, of that child, if that child's vegan, it's only right that, you know, if they're providing... Um, other lunches, you know, uh, meat or dairy lunches, they should provide vegan lunches too. And this is in accordance with the Equality Act. So so that's why... So yeah, no, I'd be very surprised if this case in March um, isn't successful because the Equality Act is what is often used to argue that vegans should be provided with school lunches. Um, and on top of that, you know, it's the same with... Um, I mentioned the employment case of the person that was anti-fox hunting, but, you know, there's some cases where, you know, you might be at work and um, you're discriminated for, you know, perhaps you're not given a job because you're a vegan and the job might have some cooking involved. You know, if you can argue that you can still do the job without, you know, affecting, you know, without actually affecting the main duties of a job, 
then again, you should be able to argue under the Equality Act that your veganism is not um, not affecting the duties of that job. So there's loads of examples where, yeah, where the where the Equality Act and where um, veganism as being a protected characteristic under the Equality Act um, would come in handy. Well, that's really interesting. Lots of parallels to what's happening in Canada. And I, I know from attending international symposiums on this type of issue, very similar to a lot of countries and the issues that they're grappling with right now and trying to make sure that our human rights laws protect people's beliefs too. So we'll watch that case closely. Well, we have mm. to wrap things up soon. But before we go, I really wanted to get your um, advice any advice, actually, that you might have to offer to students who want to get into this field? A lot of our listeners are students, and they're always very, very keen to learn about people's different journeys to doing animal law work, which you've already explained. But are mm. there any parting words of advice that you would leave students with? Yeah, no, of course. I, I um, You know, I, I do think that this area is still relatively niche. So I would say that there is no one way to become an animal rights lawyer. And it definitely does come down to, you know, blazing your own trail. I think um, it's completely possible, though. And, uh, you know, you're, you're testament to that as much as I am. But, um, yeah, I, I really do think that you have to really use your initiative to carve a career in this area. Um, but I do think from the way that I kind of got into it, there are a few things that I think kind of stand out as essential kind of ingredients in how in how in how that actually happened. Um, firstly, I think, you know, trust your own journey. I remember being at law school, you know, looking over at my peers and because they were following this conventional route, everything seemed to be very, very structured and certain for them. You know, you'd apply for a law firm at a certain time and the kind of training process of that and the shadowing process. And everything is very staged and clear. And I think if we're, you know, in an area that is so niche and because there are, you know, so few opportunities, it's really not as straightforward as that. You know, there will be your there will be times where you're volunteering or you're doing paid work to subsidize the animal work. And it will feel a bit unsettling. And so I really think you just kind of have to trust the fact that, you know, you are paving, paving your own way and, yeah, and just kind of go with that and don't look over your shoulder at what other people are doing. I also think um, it's really important to have a plan B, not as a kind of a, as what to do when you give up, but more what you're happy doing whilst you're trying to kind of pursue your dream job. My plan B was intellectual property law, and I was very happy doing this whilst waiting for an animal law opportunity to appear. So I think just try and think of, of something you would be happy doing whilst pursuing animal law. Um, this is just purely a practical point just you know you have rent to pay and the rest of it and life to live so I'd, I'd suggest you know finding something you could do um and also and, and I think this is the most important and there's really no substitute for it and that's action I really think you have to be incredibly proactive there are limited positions and this this is true in any area of law or career that you pursue you really have to be proactive you have to kind of create your own luck go to conferences meet people email people working in the field, keep on learning. And I truly do believe that, you know, if, if you do that, if you are proactive, it will pay off and you will eventually get the job you want. I, so, yeah, yeah then, I couldn't agree advice. more. I think that's really, really sound advice. I, I give students a similar version of that myself. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Well, Edie, we really appreciate that you came on Paw and Order, and I'm wishing all the best of luck to you and David with the firm launch party. We'll definitely be watching, and I hope you'll come back and join us again someday. 
No, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely talking to you. Heroes and Zeros. And now it's time for your favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. <laughs> you just have to say it. Even if I do the intro, <laughs> I love you still it. like saying it, don't I you? I just love that guy. Every time I hear him, I'm just like, Heroes and Zeros. I just I love know. Him. I wish I had a radio voice like that. He's awesome. He's the star of the show. Yeah. All right. Well, aside so a from hero. You, yeah. Well, of course. So a hero, <laughs> our hero today, is Jody Lazar, professor of law at Dalhousie University. Jody, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, is co-hosting and co-organizing the Canadian Animal Law Conference with Animal Justice this fall, and I just want to give her a very special shout out. Jody is someone who's. Uh, incredibly hardworking. And this conference, it's not an under not an overstatement to say that this never would have come about without Jody. She had the idea of doing it. We kind of have talked about having one before Peter, but without a real motivation like Jody behind this to, to actually sort of take the lead on getting some of the preliminary work done, uh, it never would have come together. So it's just been fabulous to work with Jody so far. And we're so excited about what this conference holds and so grateful for everything that she's done along the way and will be doing to make it the best event ever. Absolutely. Couldn't say, couldn't agree more. It is, uh, these conferences are not easy to put on. They're not easy to get the funding for. They're not easy to shepherd. And Jody made it her mission as a young professor that this is what she wanted to do. And she put it all together and she has put the application together. She's fought to have it. She's going to host it at Dalhousie. Hosting is no fun, Camille. Trust me, it's much more fun to attend a conference than to host one. Um, so we got to give it up to Jody for just doing such incredible work. We can't say enough about it. We're looking forward to it. Totally. And for every hero, there is, of course, a big fat zero. This year, we are with this month, we are we are leaving the province of Alberta. We're heading east to Quebec, one of our other old friends. Oh, boy, it's the Kalesh owners, isn't it, Camille? Oh, the horse carriage industry. Good we to have love them back our horses. on the program. Yeah, they always say they love our horses, but I would beg to disagree based on this news story that we're about to talk to talk about. Uh, so there's a Montreal Kalesh operator who was in court recently trying to refute allegations of animal neglect. This guy, Luke, who owns Lucky Luke Stables. and Unlucky many of... Luke Stables for the horses, anyway. Yeah. yeah, unlucky for the horses, for sure. But these horses are forced to pull carriages in old Montreal, often for tourists. And someone complained to the Quebec Agricultural Ministry about the treatment of these horses. There was a complaint about a horse that seemed to be underweight and doing poorly who was being forced to pull a Kalesh. So a vet and an inspector visited Lucky Luke's stables and they found a horse living in filthy conditions, lack of drainage in the stall, feces that had piled up, and the horse was developing an untreated rash. So they fined him $600. You know, not a huge penalty, right? $600, but he's still fighting it. He uh, is in court now fighting it. Apparently a vet has testified that the horse in question was at least get this, Peter, 300 pounds underweight and was limping. Oh my 300 God. pounds. That's like three of me, right? That's huge. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of frightening, Camille. I know. Like, can Sorry, you imagine that like, type of body mass being like missing from an animal? Like, that's, that's just I, completely I'm still, appalling. I'm to still me. trying to come with, to grips with the idea that you weigh about 100 pounds. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, how tiny are you? Maybe a little bit more. I'm strong, though. I promise I'm strong. 
Okay. I didn't think it was yeah. that funny. Okay. All right. Anyway, so yeah. yeah the, so the vet inspector, uh, vet testified that the horse was severely underweight, and inspector testified that stalls had no litter in them. The horses lived in their own excrement and urine, and there were untreated wounds, likely as the result of living in filth. So uh, next time you hear a horse carriage owner claim that the industry treats animals so well and so respectfully and that they like pulling carriages and that they have a happy, happy life, just look back in this article or maybe send it to them because this is obviously unacceptable. The good news, Peter, is that caleches will soon be illegal in Montreal. By the end of this year, there'll be a ban. Absolutely. That is good news. Well, that brings us to the end of our Heroes and Zeros and to the end of our show. And Camille, it occurred to me... We forgot to mention our sponsor. Uh, we did. We did. It but slipped. we do have a it fabulous slipped. sponsor. We do. And I have news about our sponsor. Let's just mention first that our sponsor, of course, this show was brought to you, all of it, from the beginning to this very end, by The Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan website with all sorts of vegan clothing, all sorts of amazing uh, soap products, all sorts of decals, you name it. V- uh, Grinning Goat has it. I visited the Grinning Goat after uh, the last show, and it was uh, as fantastic as I had hoped. I got myself some new clothes, some new socks. It's wonderful. You can visit the Grinning Goat in person in Calgary, uh, or you can visit them online at www.grinninggoat.ca. And don't forget, don't forget that if you order something, you use our paw and order discount. Paw15 is the discount code. Get you 15% off on any purchase that you make. And I should add, Camille, I should add that I went to the Grinning Goat website the other day. They are selling special Valentine's Day packages. So if you have a vegan special someone in your life or, or, you just feel like showing some love to your favorite paw and order (laughs) co-host, like either way, the Grinning Goat is the place to go. That's right. And they ship nationwide. So visit them, Paw15 for 15% off at checkout. Give them some love. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for showing up. We'll check you out next time on another edition of Paw and Order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw & Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw & Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.